The Naive Theatre of the Air presents Rewired by Matthew Broyles. Episode 3, The Island. Night was only a suggestion at BDF HQ. The lights were turned lower on Harry's floor, but for all the residents deep in the transmetal block knew it could be full daylight outside. The digital wall clock claimed that midnight had passed two hours ago. Harry still smelled of Nina, who had only left his room an hour previously. Her moans, real ones, not emanating from a stem vid, were all that had kept him from losing his mind, waiting for whatever it was. He was as prepared as he would ever be, which wasn't anywhere near as prepared as he would like. Harry's eyes shot up to the clock. 2.13, February 15th. Figured they'd be early. Harry walked cautiously over and opened the door. Nina? I couldn't sleep. Didn't figure you could either. Want a cracker? Anxiety seized his sphincter like a fist. 2.14. Something was coming. Nina, I'm... Don't worry. I don't expect a repeat performance. Not right away, anyhow. I really have to... ask you to leave. <laughs> You're busy all of a sudden? Well, la-di-da. I just... I'm really tired. Nina followed his line of sight, and her eyes widened slightly. She cocked her head to one side, towards the camera, and raised an eyebrow. A shadow hove into view behind the translucent door glass. Nina dropped the crackers. Harry fought the urge to wet himself. Harry winced and motioned furtively for Nina to hide. Or at least he hoped that's what he was telling her. She went blank. His blood ran cold. Not an episode, not now. Tiptoeing hastily over to the bed, he laid her down gently, covering her with the thin, standard-issue psych word blanket. Looking behind him, he saw the shadow shuffle its feet. He hurried back towards the door, took a deep breath, and turned the handle. Cleaning service. You called us? Had a little spill? Harry blinked. The woman inclined her head forward inquisitively. Brown hair in a tight bun. He could just make out her nameplate. Bronwyn. Of course. Yes. Messy. Very messy. His brain was working so hard to hold itself together. All of their functions were suffering. However, he was cognizant enough to notice a large automated cleaning cart behind her. Big enough, perhaps, to hide a person inside. He was pretty sure he'd seen that in a movie. Hopefully the guards hadn't. May I come in? Of course. In lieu of other options, this had to be his answer to everything at this point. The janitor, whose name was, or wasn't, Bronwyn, stepped nonchalantly into his room. Her cart followed on command, forcing Harry to abruptly get out of the doorway and into the room. Bronwyn turned then and produced a tiny black square, the center of which she pressed. Her smile disappeared with alarming ease. We are no longer being monitored. I advise you to hurry before someone comes to check on the camera. And before your friend here wakes up and starts making more noise. Harry cast a nervous glance at Nina. She had to be hearing all this. Would she tell anyone? Did he know her that well? Bronwyn pressed another key and a hatch slid open on the side of the cart. A rather small hatch. I'm supposed to go in there? You're a goddamn genius. Where are we going? 
Does it matter? I just feel that- I have been ordered to get you into that cart using whatever means are necessary. Would you like to hear a list of the means I have available to me? Harry was sure he didn't. He carefully got down on his knees, climbed through the tiny hole, and formed himself into a ball of flesh, hair, cotton, and sweat. Before the hatch closed, he saw Bronwyn bending over the prostrate Nina's ear. You remember nothing. Harry had once seen a documentary film about the tunnels used to access some of the more remote chambers of the pharaoh tombs in Egypt. At the time, he shuddered at the thought of pressing himself between solid walls of rock and a narrow slit deep below the earth, with scarcely enough oxygen to breathe. Inside the cart, he didn't even have room to shudder. It had been at least a half hour of bumps, unexpected spins, and muffled conversations before at last the cart went quietly still. Harry was afraid even to hope for the end of his ordeal, which of course would only reveal to him the beginning of the next unknown peril. Get out. Harry tried. And tried. With a labored sigh, Bronwyn helped extract his crumpled body from its prison. Still none the wiser as to his location, he cast his eyes around for a clue. We're in a truck. We'll be for a little longer. Sit down and hold on to something. Is it okay to ask where we're going now? Yes. Where are we going? I don't know. Don't blame me, it's not my party. Are you going with me? Not once we get past the gate. You're in their hands after that. Whose hands would those be? Well, whoever they are, they pay well. You're not the regular night janitor. Mm, Accidents happen, I guess. Wait, you... You think I know details? Please. I got an ID card, location, time, and room number. My dad! Did they spring him too? The hell do I know? Ow! No mystery noises from the cleaning truck. How do you know they aren't already looking for us? Nina. Your friend will be sleeping for a while. Gave her a little something on the way out. But she's got a condition. Don't we all? Now shut the hell up. The truck pulled to a stop, and Harry heard distant laughs and banter from the front of the truck. The driver knew the guard, of course. Harry wondered who knew what and when he was going to be let in on it. As the truck picked up speed, he was certain they had left BDF headquarters. But in a few minutes, it slowed to a stop again. This is where I get off. Hey, you're not such a bad guy. I hope you're going somewhere good. Thanks. You too. Another ignorant pawn like him started up the truck and got them moving again. Harry was beginning to wish that it would just stay like this. Inexplicable actions with murky motivations deep in the night. He suspected that as soon as he found out what the hell was going on, he was going to wish that he hadn't. For one thing, the heist had robbed him of his only replacement for the sex den, which was normally how he handled crises. Nina had been an even better distraction, if less predictable. He wished he could tell the driver to make a stop by Edwino's bodega on the way of wherever they were going. Harry dealt with panic by not dealing with it. These people were fucking up his system. He crawled to the front of the truck's storage area and banged on the wall where he estimated the driver would be. No windows, of course, and no response. He could be dying back there, no one would know. A stupid way to die. His dad would be pissed. Jesus, Dad. Where the hell are you now? Don't think I forgot about you. Hide all you want. You're gonna get what's coming to you. Where the hell am I? Harry had spent his entire life in Brooklyn, and if there was one thing he knew the smell of, it was Red Hook. 
The cold weather stirred up less of the effluvia in the canals than usual, but it was still there. The dank. Waste, rotting wood, bodies dumped over centuries. He could see the Smith and Ninth Street train station in the near distance. The high end of a roller coaster that swept its passengers deep within the earth. Hell, he could take it back downtown if he could get free. It was not yet clear whether his current predicament was preferable to incarceration. The truck had let him out in an old warehouse with holes in the roof. The driver, who conveniently claimed not to speak English, grunted and pointed towards a circle of stools with a gas heater in the center. The overhead door at the front was wide open, so apparently secrecy was not a problem on this block. Having disposed of his cargo, he signaled to someone outside the door who Harry could not see and drove off. Craning his neck, Harry did at least make out the barrel of a rifle creeping into view from time to time. He told himself that he should settle down, that if they were going to kill him, they would have done it by now. But he found that this thought was of little comfort. His father had always told him there were plenty more unpleasant things than death, one of which, of course, was his father. The dim light of dawn was inching into the eastern sky when at last a second truck, nearly identical to the first one, drove in. Behind it, the warehouse door clattered shut. From the passenger side door, a stout form popped out. Dr. Vinson! The doctor gave him a faint, weary grin. In her ball cap and civilian clothes, she looked disarmingly approachable. Harry, we've brought your father, as I'm sure you've surmised. It took a little longer than we'd hoped, so we'll have to hide out here till nightfall. Did you cram him into one of those damned carts? <sighs> Not originally. Still, he is here, and now the mission can truly begin. Which is... How the fuck long does it take to open a goddamn door? I did. The old man looked a bit bruised and weaker than usual. No doubt they'd had to sedate him for the escape. He cast his gaze around apprehensively. Harry knew why. They're not here. They're always here. They've cured you, Dad. My ass. The bastards are hiding. I'm not stupid. Or crazy. You fuckers are just blind. You are, of course, absolutely right, Sergeant Selden. You! You're working with them! I saw you! You did see me, Sergeant. But I am the one who got you away from them. Bullshit. No one gets away. From her pocket, Dr. Vincent pulled out a silver ring with a black cross sigil. Does this mean anything to you, Sergeant Selden? The hell you're VEF. The hell I am, soldier. Who else could have gotten you out of there? Certainly not those idiot disciples. Harry's heart sank. Of all the nut jobs to get mixed up with, it had to be the damn Vorn Elimination Front. This was not going to end well. Unexpectedly, his father's gaze traveled to the floor. His shoulders sagged. Sorry I let you down. I tried. There were just so many of them. We're not here to scold you, Sergeant. You were meant for greater things. Like what? In order for humanity to know its enemy, it must be seen. We have solid intelligence telling us that someone has developed a new technology that can potentially turn anyone into a seer. Anyone? You are the man to bring that technology to Brooklyn. And maybe the world. Where? Where do I find it? Texas. In the underground bunker of Dr. Waylon Lilly. Harry passed out. It was a dream he'd experienced before. He knew that instantly. A grand old house, dark wood and curving staircases. Books of ancient vintage lined the walls. No pictures or paintings. Twilight sun streamed through the windows, but nothing discernible could be seen outside from within. He wandered freely, through uncountable rooms. It seemed to go on forever, yet somehow he knew it did not. There was somewhere in the house he needed to go, 
a room he had yet to find. It seemed as if he had once known how to get there, but none of the staircases or doors seemed to lead him in the right direction. But he knew it was there. He knew it. From the corner of his eye, he caught a movement. Turning, he found nothing but his own reflection in an iron-rimmed mirror. It was his face, but it wasn't. When it came down to it, he wasn't entirely sure who he was. He was him, the dreamer. The only one there could be in this place. He recognized he was a man dreaming, but no other details were forthcoming. He sat down. Could he wake himself up? And if so, was he still the dreamer? Or was all this, including the man in the mirror, to become another forgotten memory? He stood and continued his search for the lost room. The sun was a cruel alarm clock. It had found Harry's cot through a hole in the battered roof, was proceeding to nail his eyes to the back of his head. He winced and jerked himself upright. Warehouse. Truck. The previous night pieced itself together in his mind. A funhouse jigsaw puzzle of inexorable doom that was itself only a fragment of an as-yet-unseen clusterfuck masterpiece. He and his father, on a mission to Texas for the VEF. It didn't really matter what else happened. That was more hell than anyone could ask for. His movement caught the attention of Dr. Vinson, still in black jeans, t-shirt, and ball cap. Her eyes looked tired. 1600. I'm glad you slept. You'll be making quite a journey tonight. Harry nodded. Of that, he had no doubt. The doctor went to the truck and brought him a self-heating cup of coffee. The necessities of post-secession life had produced innovative greenhouse gardening techniques. Thus, Brooklyn-grown coffee was actually quite good. He was told, anyway. Harry never had anything else with which to compare it. His father sat some distance away, staring into the far wall. We've told him that you've both been loaded with a chip which sends out extra-dimensional static to ward off the Vorn. So you really believe in them? You would, too, if you've seen what I have. Dr. Baird has been receiving the data from Dr. Lilly's experiments over the past several years. What kind of experiments? The only kind Lilly will bring himself to conduct. I myself would go farther, but it's not up to me. Not yet. And Dr. Barrett? is a fool. The trouble with great men is that they begin to believe their own press. James was once an objective scientist, but he has become an ideologue. Nothing which falls outside of his assumptions about the world can be possible. He doesn't believe in the Vorn? He believes they are a legitimate phenomenon, yes. Only a blind idiot would claim otherwise. What he won't consider is the possibility that they are not simply figments of a vestigial brain node. How do we know if they weren't? That is what Dr. Lilly, bless him, is trying to discover. Thankfully, his isolation keeps him focused and unhindered by the Gladhanders. And you believe you already know the answer? I know what I've seen. Do you ever wonder why there are so few seers? Same reason most people aren't schizophrenic. It's a mental illness. Yet schizophrenics vary in their symptoms. Not so the Vorn seers. Everyone we've interrogated has exactly the same description of them. Like Dr. Barrett said, the disciples have- Fuck the disciples. Why do the numbers line up with the God Helmet statistics from the 1980s? Coincidence? Have you ever met someone from the Wired World? No, of course not. I have. We get them every now and then. Rejects that queens send blundering over. They have no idea that they are ruled by a permanent overclass of people, actually rewireds, by the way, who quietly control their preferences and aspirations via the life-casting network and reap all the benefits of their work. 
Sucks to be them. And what makes them so easily controllable? Their unrewired brains. No. It's the fact that they don't know about it. What's your point? If I wanted to take something from someone on a regular basis with no resistance whatsoever, the first thing I would do is make sure they couldn't detect my presence. And you think the Vorn have somehow done this to us? For millennia. Once we could detect them. Tales of the spirit world from humanity's dawn speak of beings which exist in parallel dimension to us and with which we interact. People thought a lot of crazy stuff back then. But every culture across the globe back to its infancy has stories of vampires. Asia, Mesopotamia, South America, Africa, everywhere. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Mental illness was around then too. I'm sure people saw some weird shit. That they did. Because they could. You're saying the Vorn somehow blinded us? It's hard to say when. Some put the beginnings around the time of Zoroaster. It does seem apparent that the growth of monotheism appears to have decreased reported incidents of supernatural encounters, except religious rapture. So you think the Vorn blocked the node in our brain that detects them? And yet we continued to search for them. We invented placeholders, gods enthroned in distant temples that we prayed one day to see for ourselves as we once had. Despite all our knowledge and the advancement of the scientific age, we still crave this other connection. We still look for something just out of the corner of our eye, which we're certain is there, though we have no tangible evidence for it. Have you ever seen a Vorn? Not in person. On videos Dr. Lilly has sent. He's developed a technology that enables him to record events through the eyes of a seer. Harry shuddered imperceptibly. The world through the eyes of an insane person. The thought horrified him. It was exactly as your father describes it. Except Dr. Lilly's subject was not your father. If I saw what those people see, I would attack the bastards too. But if we're using technology to stimulate that node, couldn't we just be amplifying the defect? <sighs> you and James. It's never enough, no matter how much evidence we compile. The unthinkable remains unthinkable because you won't think it. The sun's shadow now traveled along the far wall. Evening was approaching, and with it, time quickly slipped away for Harry to escape his predicament. So, if you're getting data from Lily's experiments, why do you need us to go to Texas? Because as I said, he will only probe so far. His experiments have military potential, but he will not venture into that realm. He claims ethical superiority, and yet, knowing what he has seen, I believe he's misguided. My family did not fight a war against the tyranny of mind control simply to stand by while the true oppressors lurk in the shadows beyond our reach. If we can see them, we can find them. And then, we can learn how to defeat them. You want us to get you his technology so you can make a weapon? If, as you say, the Vorn are figments of our imagination, why are you afraid? There could be unintended consequences. We don't know what we're dealing with. And that is why we must find out. Sergeant Selden, you have your orders. I do, Doctor. Isn't anyone going to tell me the plan? Why am I even going? I have no military experience. I'm overweight, out of shape. I don't believe in any of this shit. Why me? Because I told them so. What the hell, Dad? This is how you're going to make a man out of me at last? A suicide mission to the wired world? There are worse ways. We were going to have you hide out in a New Jersey safe house and help us hack out a digital path for your father through the wired grid. But the sergeant was rather insistent that you accompany him on his mission. You're all crazy. I'm not going. The BDF spare no expense in hunting down escapees. 
If you stay in Brooklyn, you will be found. And I guarantee you they won't put you back in your cushy psych ward with Miss Sweet Cheeks. Defeated, Harry threw up his hands. The worst that could happen was more than likely going to happen. At least this way, he could learn something before it did. The entrance to the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel was one of the most heavily guarded locations in the Republic. The wall rose up behind it, following the curve of the bay just past the shoreline. No ins or outs except through designated gates, which were seldom opened. Just beyond, he knew, lay Governor's Island, a neutral zone, locked in the crosshairs of missile emplacements on both sides. The battery tunnel ran alongside it underwater, then across the bay to Manhattan although no mere civilians had made the journey from one side to the other in decades. It was certain death. Everyone knew that. What they did not know, and what Harry had just learned, was that the ventilation system for the tunnel had a poorly guarded entrance near the docks. Although in this case, poorly guarded meant only that it was an automatic system meant to prevent anyone from coming over through the Manhattan side. The cameras were aimed at the entrance, leaving a blind spot behind them. Dr. Vincent's text had a hack that could give the cameras a 30-second glitch. Long enough for the BDF supervisors to notice, but by the time they got there to inspect it, all VEF personnel would have escaped into the night. At this point, Harry was less concerned with the BDF than with the Manhattan security net, the most formidable defense system in the Western Hemisphere. The VEF techs had assured him that if need be, they would clear him and his father a path through the network of camera eyes, electrified walls, and robotic machine gun nests that lay before them, but his confidence was not high. It was, after all, a rusting metal tunnel under a shallow waterway, boasting some of the highest surveillance in the wired world. The wall straddled the tunnel without bisecting it, keeping a pathway open for rare excursions by diplomats and prisoners of war. Near the midpoint, a massive ventilation structure jutted out from the water, connected to Governor's Island by a thin strip of bridge. This, of course, was an obvious focal point for the myriad targeting computers whose armored limbs lined the Manhattan shoreline. And this, it turned out, was exactly where they were headed. When you say I'll know it when I see it, how can you be so sure? As I've said, there will be a black cross on the wall. In the dark. You will have flashlights. The MSN perimeter begins 100 yards beyond. So we'll definitely know if we missed it. I won't miss it. They didn't send us your reading glasses when we were arrested. You've got yours. Want me to use them? Harry gave up. They were hunched down in the truck's rear, within sight of the proposed entrance. It occurred to him that this was probably the last time he would ever see Brooklyn. No more Coney Island hot dogs. No more picnics at Prospect Park. No more visits to Edwina's bodega. Fact was, all of that had been taken from him the minute he entered the BDF's custody. Leaving the island changed little. Still, he lamented his lost life, now forever out of reach. On my mark, move out. One, two, three, mark. Harry, his father, and two VEF techs tumbled out of the truck. Behind them in the cab sat the driver, armed just in case. Harry's and his father's armaments consisted of forged IDs, $2,000 in U.S. currency, which Harry had never before seen in person, and gray uniforms with fairy staff emblazoned upon the back in yellow. Guns were useless. If they found themselves in a situation bad enough to warrant a firefight, they were already done for. 
There were two automated guard turrets aimed towards a small entrance, as predicted. Each tech attached their rig to the back of one, gave a finger countdown, and shut them down. At that, Harry and his father broke into a run. The sort of run that an out-of-shape couch surfer and an arthritic old man might display if they were certain that at any moment they would be blasted into smithereens. As sad a spectacle as it was, it was sufficient to propel them through the doorway before the 30-second camera outage resolved itself. On the other side of the entrance, Harry and his father wheezed laboriously in the dark. They didn't dare turn on their flashlights until they managed to get up the strength to walk far enough into the tunnel that they wouldn't be seen. This took quite some time. When at last they got far enough inside that no trace of outside light could penetrate, Harry flipped on his flashlight. Backwards, of course, temporarily blinding him. Ow! I always wondered. Did they teach you anything in militia training besides beating off? I learned how to work with assholes. Useful skill, it turns out. What Harry's father lacked in tact, he made up for in navigation. With his flashlight aimed only at the ground below them, he measured out their distance in paces. After about 15 minutes, he brought them to a halt. Scan the walls on your side, slowly. Harry wrinkled a bit, but gave deference under the circumstances. What remained of the bright tiles reflected the light easily, illuminating the tunnel with an eerie glow. Here. Harry rushed over. There, carved roughly into a section of wall that was missing its tiles, was a black cross. A few feet below, a chunk of rock lay against the side of the tunnel. It wasn't very big. Harry wedged his foot in behind a crag and pushed the stone aside to reveal a small hole, barely big enough for a man to crawl through. He knew the large ventilation shaft had to be just above where they stood, and that this would lead them to it. Wasting no time, Lars got on his belly and proceeded to squeeze through the opening. Harry was not optimistic about his chances of getting through, but he made the attempt. When he got stuck in the middle, he sucked in his gut as tightly as he could. A sharp pull from his father completed the ingress. After reaching through and replacing the stone, Lars scanned this narrow passageway in which they found themselves. Quickly, he spotted the ladder up to the main shaft. They had been told that MSN sensors did not extend there, as that was still within the Governor's Island neutral zone. Harry hoped the VEF's intelligence was right. After a short climb, they found themselves within a fairly large structure that had to be the vent. The very vent that the biggest weapons in New York were trained on 24-7. Lars scanned the room and found his target. Another black cross etched into a piece of masonry on the floor. A bit more difficult to remove than the rock, but as they had been told, there was a crowbar hidden under a ledge nearby. Harry had to concede that the VEF were at the very least quite thorough. The block gave way, revealing a roughly carved tunnel into the earth. Harry was reminded of the Egyptian tomb documentary, not for the first time. After his father's descent, Harry replaced the crowbar, climbed into the dank hole, and with considerable effort, replaced the concrete block above him. Taking a deep breath, he followed his old man into the shadows. This trek seemed longer to Harry, if only because the rock did not reflect the light as readily as the tile. The absence of a giant ventilation shaft weighed on his mind as well, but he found there was enough air for the two of them. After maybe ten minutes, his father abruptly stopped, nearly tripping Harry over. Someone's up ahead. Nehecho de na. Nalde. He. He el sand. Nehecho da ne. Nalde. He. Ta ane. A flash from an old movie scene wandered through Harry's mind. Navajo code talk. So old it was new again. Instantly another flashlight switched on several yards ahead. Slowly it began to advance, finally revealing a broad face atop a linebacker's body, clad in a fairy staff uniform identical to theirs. Lieutenant Harold Tubman, 
The first of many you will encounter, I'm sure. Mandela Squad, reporting for duty. I'm Sergeant Richard Kimball, and this is Private Theodore Kaczynski. Harry still didn't know why his old man thought that name was funny. But now was not the time to ask. Something within him took a bit of comfort in the idea that he and his father were now both following orders. Follow me. Reaching the end of the tunnel, they arrived at an opening of similar size to the one they had crawled through in the battery tunnel. This one was a bit wider, presumably to accommodate the lieutenant's muscular bulk, so Harry did not need assistance in getting through. Upon exiting the tunnel, the trio found themselves in a small brick room with a curved ceiling. The Fort J powder magazine, deep within the ancient army base on Governor's Island, abandoned under the neutral territory provisions of the Non-Contamination Treaty. Harry breathed a momentary sigh of relief. Here, at least, they were unlikely to be detected. His relief did not last long. Activate cold suits. Among the surveillance the MSN employed in the bay was a heat sensor. The BDF had developed an electrically activated thread that would bring the external temperature of the suit in line with the air temperature, which in this case, in February, was hovering around 20 degrees Fahrenheit. The internal temperature of the suit could only be slightly higher, so as Harry's suit cooled down, he began to accept that it was going to be a bit of a cold walk. Face screens on. These were made of the same material and reminded Harry of the old pantyhose robber masks that he had seen in old movies. Already he could feel his nose and ears getting a bit frosty. Move out. And so what was left of the Selden family followed him up a ramp into a building lined with barred windows. They made for the door and emerged into a courtyard and headed to the far side. Since Manhattan was closer to their location than Staten Island was, they ran a lower risk of detection by going to the south end of the island. However, they had to keep towards the western shore, as there were equally unwelcome BDF outposts along the wall to the east. They kept a light pace, thus making sure the suits didn't have to work too hard to keep their body temperature down. This was just fine by Harry. Perhaps 15 minutes later, they arrived at the south edge of the island. A small hole had been cut in the surrounding fence, through which they dropped onto crags of rock below. A black canoe was waiting for them, tied to an iron bar, roughly driven into a boulder. Once they had taken position inside the canoe, the lieutenant checked his watch. Our men are on the midnight ferry. They've sealed off the back rows for maintenance to avoid our detection. After harpooning the railing, we will pull up close and climb up a rope ladder. Once you are aboard, I will release the harpoon cable. You will attach the hook to the ladder and drop both of them into the water. Understood? Yes, sir. Harry might have actually enjoyed this odd sort of bonding experience with his dad, were it not for the bristling towers barely visible in the gloom on all sides. As they rode forth from Governor's Island, Harry was grateful for the slight rise in body temperature from the exertion. This, of course, ran the risk of exposing them, but given that they had made it this far, he had renewed faith in the BEF's abilities. Cat shit crazy though the organization may have been. To the left, he could see the massive bulk of the Staten Island Ferry trudging its way through the murky waters. The trio had rowed far enough south that they would not be directly between the ferry and Governor's Island. Ahead of the boat, Harry saw something else, too. A torch held aloft by an impossible green woman. He had seen pictures, but finally faced with her, he was awe-stricken enough to slow his rowing. Lars noticed and followed his gaze. Iron Lady of Tyranny. Should have blasted that thing to pieces while we had the chance. It wasn't always like that. She gave our ancestors a lot of hope. Not mine. Harry couldn't really argue with that. Steadily, the air filled with the hum of the ferry's engines as it approached. The lieutenant attached one end of a cable spool to a spot on the keel line at the front of the canoe. On the other end was a grappling hook, which he inserted into a shoulder-mounted launching mechanism. The wake from the big boat threatened to knock them over, 
They bent low to keep the canoe upright. Harry could see faces behind the panes, his first glimpse of wireds. Somehow, he'd expected them to be noticeably different. But there they were, perfectly ordinary people, wrapped up in overcoats and hats against the winter chill. He saw one pretty redhead looking out into the night, and involuntarily wished she would turn her gaze in his direction. Thankfully, no one on board bothered to glance towards the dark gray wall across the waves. The moment the rear deck of the ferry came even with their vessel, the lieutenant launched his harpoon. The hook grabbed the railing, and the spool of cable began to let out. Hold on! The lieutenant pressed the locking trigger on the spool, which ceased its motion. The boat lurched forward, and Harry was thrown backwards into the water. Desperately, he grabbed at the tail of the canoe, seizing it with an iron adrenaline grip. The flash of the cold water soaking his cold suit had shocked his senses into a state he had never before experienced. Don't die, he thought. That was all he could possibly think. Lars crawled swiftly to the back of the canoe and grabbed Harry's free arm. Hang on! With effort, Lars firmly yanked Harry upwards into the rear of the vessel. The canoe was skittering from side to side in the waves under the mighty engine's power. It was a struggle to lie low enough to keep it from flipping over. On the ferry's rear deck, a uniformed man threw out a ladder. Now in front, Lars winched the canoe closer to the side of the massive ship, drawing even with the deck. With an oar, he snagged the rope ladder and brought it over to the canoe. Climbing up as quickly as he could, the old sergeant turned to look expectantly at Harry. Governor's Island passed steadily on the right. They didn't have long before they were within easy observation range from Manhattan. Harry scooted to the front of the canoe, still an anxious shock clambered up the rope ladder to the ferry. Release! The lieutenant detached the cable from below. Quickly, the uniformed man on board untangled the grappling hook, snarled it in the rope ladder, and tossed the whole thing into the sea behind them. The canoe was no longer visible. Harry hoped the lieutenant had made it. He hoped, quite frankly, that he himself would make it. Lars rushed over and hit the patch which deactivated Harry's cold suit fibers. The man on board knelt beside them. He looked Puerto Rican with a salt and pepper goatee. Seaman Harold Tubman, we need to get you a fresh uniform. Follow me. He wasn't sure how, but Harry got to his feet and shuffled inside. There was a service room towards the rear of the boat, which they hustled Harry into. His skin seemed to have frozen right onto his bones and he could barely move. He had come so near to death in the black deep. Safe now aboard the craft, he fought the urge to break down and cry, but he wasn't going to give the old man that satisfaction. He opened a small hatch and found several uniforms inside. Thankfully, there was one roughly his size, although a bit tight around the middle. Transferring his meager possessions from the pockets of the old uniform, he stuck the wet garment into a vinyl sack. He wasn't sure if they would need the cold suits again. He certainly felt he shouldn't risk losing it. Soon after, the new tubman entered the room, nonchalantly, carrying two unmistakable items in silver wrapping. Some things, apparently, didn't change outside the wall. Harry and his father gratefully accepted the hot dogs, wolfing them down within moments. Presently, he and his father were issued fake wires so small that they didn't even seem worth the bother. But where they were going, the absence of one meant suspicion, followed almost certainly by death, or worse. The devices were placed behind their left ears. Harry's senses pricked up, as if he could feel the information coursing through the tiny, mind-altering contraptions. So long as they weren't hitting gray matter, the wires were harmless. As the big ferry's engine pitch shifted in preparation for docking, Lars raised an eyebrow at Tubman. Neta. Harry eyed them. He wasn't sure where his father had picked up Navajo, 
but he suspected it might explain why he had snuck out of the house so often in the few months before the platform incident. Thankfully, Harry's ignorance of the cipher gave him an excuse to remain silent as the boat groaned into port. The three of them stood up, as inconspicuously as possible, and proceeded towards the front of the craft, each carrying an overcoat and lunchbox, signifying the end of their shift and thus egress from the craft. Harry couldn't help but steal glances on the way up. Wireds. Wireds. They surrounded him, walking around like they were regular people. Which, of course, they were, to the world at large. There was the redhead off to his right. Conflicting instincts fought for control of his eyes. Midway down her soft black coat, faint but noticeable curves jostled the fabric this way and that. It occurred to him that somewhere in her luxuriant mane lay a wire, connecting her brain to a minuscule broadcast receptor chip. A thread so small, and yet it was the one thing that defined her as the other, the enemy. What did she believe about his people? What had she been told to fear, and why? And for that matter, how much did he really know about her kind? Only what he'd been told. From his experience at BDF headquarters, the truth was beginning to feel a bit more fluid. He wanted to ask her out for a cup of coffee. Not that he would have, even if she had been rewired. But he wanted to. As the crowd made its way forward, Harry saw the guarded gates ahead. Everything inside him clenched. MSN, he thought. The boogeyman. Evil incarnate, so far as his militia instructor had been concerned. Yet as they grew closer, Harry noticed that for a dreaded army of darkness, these guys looked decidedly, well, bored. IDs were half-heartedly flashed and just as carelessly checked. And why wouldn't they be, Harry thought. The secession was decades ago and only insane Brooklynites were thrown out beyond the wall, noticeable upon arrival. Or so the wires must have surmised. Obviously someone had gotten through, otherwise their goateed guide wouldn't be there. There could be scores of rewires lurking on the streets of Manhattan. Exiting the terminal, towers loomed above him. New York. The real New York from the old movies. On all sides of him, faces on glowing billboards promised happiness. A better life. Better than anything you could possibly have, because you couldn't possibly have enough. There was advertising in Brooklyn, of course, but all static, by order of the BDF. Goods were sold by paper posters, not these luminous forms bursting from their lighted stages. It was overwhelming, and he wasn't even jacked in. Everyone else in the crowd was receiving subtextual data from the advertisers directly into their brains, reinforcing the messages on the ads. They didn't notice it, of course. The information was woven into their favorite songs, movies, and talk shows. Even novels, all digital here, were loaded with propaganda. Or so he had been told. Looking at the diverse array of fashions and demeanors, he wondered just how much uniformity of thought there could be. But of course there was targeting. Different in-group, out-group definitions directed towards one customer or another, based on their purchasing history and media access records. Be a rebel, buy this shoe instead of that one. He glanced over at the redhead now making her way down the subway steps. If by some miracle he sat down with her for a cup of coffee, what would she say? Would it be a stream of pre-programmed thoughts, designed by a committee with a pie chart? Did she have original ideas? Or did she just think she did? Harry's father followed his gaze. You picked a fine time to get interested in real girls. You picked a fine time to start giving a shit about my interests. Easy there. Harry and Lars, abashed, fell into a cold silence as they followed their guide towards a yellow van double parked nearby. Harry blinked. BDF Manpower Services read the logo on the side. Bold, he thought. Stupidly so. But then, 
Perhaps the war was further from the minds of the society than it was from those of his people. Maybe it was going to be all right. Climbing into the back of the van, he regretted the thought instantly. There was no room for false hope on this excursion, not with his father in tow. There would be a rude awakening. It was only a question of when. Transmission begin. 22 minutes, 47 seconds. Erebus 2. Recommission power up 987. Status report. Orbit uniform since last transmission. A sense of monstrous guilt was upon the land, and out of the abysses between the stars swept chill currents that made men shiver in dark and lonely places. Decommission power down in 60 seconds. Transmission end, 22 minutes, 48 seconds. You've been listening to the Naive Theater of the Air performance of Rewired, featuring Levi Ray as Harry, Trista Morris as Nina, Kate Greathouse as Bronwyn, Reed Perry as Lars, Mana as Dr. Vincent, and Janice McCall as the voice of the satellite, written and narrated by Matthew Broyles, theme music by Paul Shapira. I'm Little Jack Melody. Tune in next time for Episode 4, War Games.